All right. Well, uh, welcome to BSing with Sean K. Uh, I'm your host, Sean Neese. Today, my guest is uh, Daniel Delafay. He is a writer and poet, and he's uh, here today to tell us about his book, uh, Urban Jungle Mystic. So thanks for coming on. Yo, thanks for having me, man. This is uh, literally my first like <laughs> official interview about a book. So it's my first book. So you're pretty cool for that. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No problem. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the book a lot. Uh, so, um, first, first I'm just going to ask, uh, what, what can you tell us about yourself and how you got started with writing? Um, I started writing when I was around 10, so probably like fourth grade. I would write little short stories about like, I was reading like, um, all oh, those Arl Stein books and stuff when I was younger. So I would write like little ghost stories and stuff, but I always had my grandma around and she would read them and encourage me, and she used to read me read to me when I was younger, like Hardy Boy stories and stuff like that. So she, I had her to always kind <clears> of <throat> emphasize literacy to me and the importance of literacy. Uh, and then through high school, I always excelled in English classes. They were my favorite. I got uh, into reading Harry Potter when I was like 12, so that got me really into reading more. And uh, I play music and I paint. So throughout high school, I almost uh, went into school as a fine arts major. Didn't, you know, didn't really too, feel too confident about my portfolio because I always felt like I did art on the side. And then I almost I almost went in as a music major, but I couldn't uh, sight read. I play uh, music by ear. I've been drumming for like 12 years, but I don't sight read or anything like that. So I fell back on English as my major. And it was like destiny, I guess, because I always had writing and it was always very important to me and you know, then ever since college, I focused in, honed in on it. And uh, how did your book, Urban Jungle Mystic, uh, first come together? All right. Well, that's interesting. Um, initially, for the past few years, I've actually been working on a research book. So it's a lot longer. It's, it's scholarly type writing. It's not really creative. It deals with philosophy and symbolism and the occult and those types of things. So I was really focusing in on that for a lot of my college career, all the way up to uh, after graduating. Then when I graduated in May, I went through a breakup. Um, I was in a long relationship uh, for like almost five years. That ended at the same time as school ended. So last summer was kind of like a dark, transitory period for me. And usually in those periods in my life, I would wound up falling back on writing poetry or I would, you know, write my thoughts and feelings out just to sort of understand what was happening, you know? Um, so I did that sort of throughout my life. I would write some poetry when I went through a dark period and then I wouldn't write much poetry. So in that book, you have sort of a collection of stuff that I wrote from when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. So, and then all the way up to now, so when I went through this recent dark period, I kind of had to take a break from my research because it was frustrating um, and my emotions weren't really letting me focus on it. <laughs> and in the middle of that, I was writing new poetry. So I started writing all of this new stuff. And then I just thought, well, why don't I just, you know, take a break from my research and put my first book out as a collection of my poetry? So I looked through all my old pieces that I wrote over the years, collected them together, edited them, picked out the ones I liked best or felt most confident in, and then wrote a bunch of new material and just threw the whole collection together on a whim, sort of. You know, I designed everything. I designed the cover. I, I took most of the photographs. Um, it was just something I felt I had to do myself, you know, if I ever wanted to feel like a writer. <laughs> and uh, you say uh, in the introduction, like, how you feel like the – earlier poems like you feel like you're a different person now than you were then but you feel like they're still important even if you aren't exactly like you said you weren't as happy with the earlier poems but like the newer ones uh you feel uh, represent who you are now more you said well yeah well the newer ones are reflecting i guess all the changes that have uh <clears throat> impacted me since some of those earlier ones a lot of the earlier ones i wrote before I was like totally out of the closet, you know, as a homosexual. And um, some of them were written before I even got with my first lover. So some of them were written sort of out of longing for him and like this fear of, you know, coming out and talking about that aspect of myself and my life and not wanting it to define me and all that's in the intro. 
But uh, after I got to that period of coming out, which is like a gradual thing, that's when I guess you see more of like the political poems start popping up in the middle. And those uh, those are more from like, you know, the whole 2011, 2012, like Occupy Wall Street era. So I was still in college when that was going on. I was already sort of in the process of coming out. So I was more comfortable with myself. And that's when some of my more uh, radical poems start coming out that are like less personal and less dealing with my like, oh, like my own inner woes, like woe is me. And more started focusing in on what was happening outside of me in the outside world. So I guess you were in a much uh, happier place in the later ones because in the earlier ones you were, uh, I guess, keeping a lot more in. Like you yeah. said, yeah. Well, and personal stuff, you know, that stuff. But, you know, even in those earlier poems, there's that, there's that whole longing for a lover or a companion to sort of help free me, which is kind of naive, you know, because, you know, I talk about in the intro, you shouldn't need another person to be happy or to feel whole or fulfilled or complete. But when you're, you know, gay and all that, it's, you know, it had to happen. Otherwise, I would have never learned all the stuff I learned, and I learned a lot. But um, I wouldn't say I was totally happy. Like, I guess my anger shifted more, you know, away from my personal stuff and towards, like, the bigger things happening in my environment, you know. So the protests that came and that stuff. Um, All the activism that starts spreading around and just I guess I started honing in and being more angry about what was happening in the world rather than what was happening in my own like personal life. And uh, what can you say like about uh, like how your immediate environment like uh, your household as well as uh, the city you live in Elizabeth had a strong impact on your writing as you say? Uh, Well the title is a big it's a big uh, homage to that you know my environment so obviously like there's a big mystical element to the book uh, like a spiritual element but you know that can't really be separated from my urban environment and a lot of times we think spirituality so we think of like retreating into nature and forests and things like that which would be nice but I'm too broke for that well to me I'm sort of emphasizing that you know my forest is the city you know that is the forest I am learning all these lessons about life that's my environment it's where I grew up you know, my trees are brick buildings. <laughs> New York City is my backyard. That's why, you know, that poem is called Backyard. So that environment uh, shaped a lot. You know, it, it gave me um, it gave me all the lessons on politics that uh, that appear in that book because, just, you know, so many people when you live in the city. So, so much experience and so many points of view, especially when you go to, you know, New York City and you attend protests and things like that. You know, you meet people from everywhere. So naturally that stuff is going to affect me and then it's going to come into my writing inevitably and uh what can you say about your own spiritual beliefs and how they developed over the years when i was in high school i went through an atheistic period um meaning like a period where i just like rejected the church entirely i was raised catholic but i suppose a lot of it had to do with you know religion's views of homosexuality and then me being one and then thinking about how that fits into all of this stuff you know because you know why would god make me this way and then have these sacred books supposedly that are his word that tell me like i'm a mistake which doesn't make any sense to me so that was one of the reasons and another reason was just uh, that break away from authority so questioning the authorities in our world so it started with the church and so I broke it from the church. But once I could question the church, it became much more easier to question the government, for example, to look at the other power structures besides religion. <clears throat> so I eventually moved away from religion, started you know, reading more about science. I became atheistic. I started looking more into like 9-11 and conspiracies and that type of thing. Eventually, I went back to spirituality because I was always fascinated by symbols, by symbolism, by art by um, esoteric things. And I start to realize, you know, all religions sort of have this kind of inner circle, this inner esoteric circle where the teachings sort of align, the teachings sort of agree with each other. The teachings look past, like, the outward trappings of the religion itself. So, for example, in Islam, you know, you have Islam, you have Sunnis, you have Shiites, you have the trappings of Islam, you have the mosques, you have the prayers, you have all the rituals. Well, you also had Islamic mystics, the Sufis. You know, the Sufis 
did things a little differently. They didn't just pray, you know, they danced. To them, dancing was prayer. To them, playing music was prayer. Writing poetry was like prayer. All those things, you know, creating art that was getting closer to God. Not all of the Orthodox religions um, or the religious sects take too kindly to this. Usually, you know, the mystics wind up being uh, the rebels or the heretics or the ones who get condemned because because of that. You know, they look past the power structure and it makes them more spiritual in a sense that they're able to look past those boundaries rather than getting caught in them, you know? But yeah, high school, long atheistic period, and then in college, I guess, is when I started becoming more interested in that stuff. And that was more to do with my research because... You know, I was doing this book on the Raimondi Stella. It's an ancient relic from Peru. I don't want to get too much into that because, you know, the show's not really about that. But that whole research is what sort of brought my attention back to, like, spirituality and that stuff. And you mentioned, like, a connection with Rumi, or at least you mentioned, like, being influenced by him a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that, that's, that's part of it, too. Um, I was reading a lot of Rumi when I was writing that book. And going through some of the stuff I was going through, like, emotionally. And uh, Gibran, I also mentioned Gibran, Khalil Gibran. A totally different time period than Rumi, but similar poet in the sense of mysticism. He was a mystical poet from Lebanon. And those two were big influences on me. And then some Western stuff. So, like, William Blake, you know, Virginia Woolf, who I quote in the beginning. Um... Rumi was definitely a huge influence on the symbolic poems, on the mystical poems. Um, yeah, and read guess, Rumi. <laughs> and I guess like his whole message that like uh, we're all like from the same place originally, like every, out, that all life is kind of one and all that. Like, because uh, you talked a bit about that in the book too. Uh, well, yeah, I guess my perspective of uh, spirituality is. Yeah, it's a mystical one in the sense that the mystics kind of look at consciousness and the soul, and to them, consciousness and the soul are sort of the same thing. This, you know, this aspect of mind. So I guess my uh, my beliefs—I don't want to call them beliefs—but my views on spirituality, I guess, align more towards like Hermeticism and Gnosticism. So the cosmos or God is like a big brain to me. It's like um, a big mind, and we're like little neurons in this mind, or almost like thoughts in the mind of God, in a sense. And I use God in quotes because, you know, it's just, it's it's a it's a word, it's a symbol that we're using to try to define something so much vaster and larger than us that cannot be defined. Um, I don't like the word God because it's kind of like sexist. <laughs> it sort of uh, excludes the goddess, which is one aspect. Um. Which you'll see, I try to bring the goddess back in with some of my poems, and you'll see her invoked as a symbol as much as God. Because to me, they're one thing. You know, the cosmos is that interplay of the feminine and the masculine. And that is that oneness, I guess. We don't perceive it as one because, you know, to exist, we have to be separated. We have to be individuals. We have to have separate bodies. And in that separation, that's where all the conflict of uh, the material world arises. Um, and yeah, the mystic starts to see that they realize that that we are something made of God that splits off of God as this little piece of a larger cosmos. And uh, what can you say about uh, your involvement in the Occupy Wall Street movement uh, that you talked about in some of <clears throat> your poems? Uh, what did what does this movement mean to you? Um, honestly, when it, when all of that started happening, I wasn't really sure to make of it. Like, I'm always weary, you know, because even, you know, any social movement can be easily flipped on its head, things like that. You know, certain leaders step up. Um, they can change a movement's direction very easily. To me, Occupy Wall Street was a microphone. So exactly what you're holding in your hand right now, <laughs> that's what it was to me. That's what it seemed like to me. I, you know, I attended a few events. I was actually there the first night, meaning September 17th, which was the first Occupy gathering in Manhattan at Zuccotti Park. I was in there earlier in the day, so I missed all of the early marches, which is in the book, I believe. I mentioned that in the poem. So I missed all of the earlier marches that first day, but I showed up that night, you know, because my friends just asked me, they're like, yo, you just want to go and check it out, see what's going on over there. So I went, ran into my friend, had a sign, you know, I made it last minute. We 
talked to a bunch of people and it was an interesting experience. You know, it's interesting to see how people react when they walk by protesters because some do, you know, some don't even glance. Other people will stop and they'll read, you know, what your sign says. Other people will stop and they'll talk to you and they'll ask why you're there. But the thing about Occupy is people had so many different reasons for being there. And that's why I call it a microphone because there's so many different problems, you know, so many different symptoms to a bigger system that everyone has like their own little symptom that they're concerned about. And everyone sort of went to like voice this. Some people were paying attention, I guess, to the larger aspects of the system and other people were honing in on more specific things. But, you know, a common question people would get if you were a part of Occupy or participated or you know, talked about it was, you know, what's your one demand? I don't know if you heard that when that was going on, but that was a common question. The news was all over that. What's your one demand? You know, we need to unite and have one demand. How do you have one demand? <laughs> When you have a systematic issue, that was my problem. So you could be someone who's focusing in on healthcare, or you could be someone who's focusing in on education. There's not enough money for that, or you're focusing in on the war effort, and we're putting too much money into that. The thing is, these are all systematic problems. They're all interrelated problems, and some people see that, some don't, and that's why it was just a microphone because there wasn't a one demand, because it gave people this sort of open mic for everyone to sort of step up and voice their discontent with whatever they were discontent with so do you feel like it like uh made some progress in some ways or was it more just like a beginning for like changes to come like in the future a beginning it definitely didn't totally go away like it sort of it lost momentum in the sense of like being unified under this banner of occupy but i think it was one of the things that I guess reinstilled a sense of uh, sense of fighting back in people, and whoever participated or got anything out of that, I'm sure a lot of people broke away from Occupy and just started their own things, you know, started their own projects to try to initiate change in the world. So if anything Occupy was beneficial for, it was I guess instilling that mentality in the people who went and experienced it and talked to people, and even if Occupy didn't continue, we take that mentality and we put that into our art so my book for example someone else who went there you know could have could have been a playwright and you know might write a play about this you know someone who went there might have just decided to start their own activist organization that was influenced by what they experienced that occupy so i think it was the beginning of something i i think i agree with you in that sense the beginning of what i can't tell you <laughs> And uh, and ruled by the numbers, uh, you talk a bit about uh, like materialism. What, could you could you explain like uh, what what you were saying a bit in this poem? Or <clears throat> ruled by the numbers. That's actually that's one I wrote around this time. Uh, I was taking a poetry class, uh, I believe, the semester that I wrote that poem with uh, Dr. Susanna Rich. I don't know if you ever had her. She's excellent. She's amazing. I hope she hears this. Shout out to Dr. Rich. <laughs> uh, I wrote that poem in her class. It was sort of a Sestina, but not really. I kind of made it my own. I didn't really stick to that total form. But the thing with that poem was I use a rhyme scheme, if you notice. So I'm kind of using that rhyme scheme to sort of symbolize this like rigid structure, right? So you have a rigid structure of a poem. Likewise, I'm using that to symbolize, well, the monetary system, this sort of rigid structure we're all stuck in and then dominated by all of our decisions are dominated by it like think about the all the people who go to college and want to pursue their passions and then actually just decide not to because oh i'm gonna major in this because i'll make more money or i'm gonna major in this because i'll make more money that's the type of system we live in type of system that forces you to just sacrifice your real talents to sacrifice the real art you could give back to the world that would create change and kind of gets us stuck in this number game, this, you know, competing for literally numbers and computer parts, you know, so a big thing I was looking into around the time I wrote that was, you know, the Federal Reserve banking system, um, fractional reserve banking, it's called, you know, where money comes from, how money is created, how money is regulated. Uh, I was looking into that stuff a lot when I wrote this poem. So like the zeitgeist movement, that type of thing, I was a little involved with that. You know, I've 
I saw Peter Joseph speak a couple times. I've seen the documentaries. Uh, I don't agree with everything with Zeitgeist, but it opened my eyes to a lot of things. And one of the things was just how the banking system functions. So how it actually works, which most of us don't really understand. You know, we use money, we have money, or we don't. We live in a system of money, but we don't really necessarily always question, you know, where does money come from? Who makes it? Who regulates it? And I guess that poem is I'm trying to force the reader to look past that stuff. And yeah, the material aspect of it. You know, life is not just how much money you have and buying things. Sometimes you have to break away from that and take a risk to do what you really love. And that might result in you being broke, (laughs) like (laughs) like being a writer. (laughs) So what is it like to be an aspiring writer nowadays? Uh, scary man it really is scary um there's so much competition you know back to that concept of money and stuff i don't really write for a particular audience so i sort of just like i want my writing to have stuff in it for the general audience as well as stuff in it for i guess a more esoteric audience or people who are willing to dig a little deeper into the meanings of the poems you know Google a phrase or look up a particular word in the dictionary and see why I use that word. But now as a writer, it's hard, man. You don't really make shit off of selling books unless you're very popular, unless you're like J.K. Rowling or something. So it's a sacrifice in many ways. It's it's taking a risk. Um, you know, I could flop or I could excel. I could flourish. To me, what's important is just making sure like my words get out there, that they they float around out there, that they stay as immortal as long as possible. (laughs) And even if I die, maybe they'll get more recognition afterwards, and that would be beautiful. You know, even if I die poor, that's fine with me. (laughs) So uh, do you feel like poetry and literature are dying forms of art nowadays, or there's still like a good amount of people who appreciate them? Poetry will never die, my friend. (laughs) It will never die. (laughs) It will never die. Art is like... Art is what moves culture, you know, art is what makes the biggest changes, you know, even just making a documentary or something and putting information together in a particular way. There's like there's an art to that, you know, and now it's it's not a dying art. Maybe it's a little overlooked by a lot of our, you know, modern day technological culture and we're so immersed in social media and just this rampant narcissism everywhere that, you know, not a lot of youth really do read. I do notice that it breaks my heart, but I don't think it's dying. I think the right people will pick the book up and get something out of it. And, you know, even if one person picks the book up and gets something out of it, <clears throat> not dead, still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do you feel like there's a lot of good contemporary poets out there? Or... Um, I honestly don't read as much poetry as I should, which sounds funny coming from a poet. Um, I read a lot of scholarly material. I read a lot of like books on philosophy and, and history and that type of thing. Uh, anthropology, mysticism, but contemporary poets, I mean, I know a couple. <laughs> one of them is a very close friend of mine, actually. Uh, I, I reference her in one of the poems called uh, To a Midnight Mistress and a Golden Bird Together in the Information War. Oh, uh, the golden bird is my friend Beth. Uh, she has a couple chat books that I have on my shelf, and those really inspired me, uh, especially to do it myself. Like her books very much inspired me to just, you know, bypass the whole manuscript submission and rejection process, which I know is like a big part of the world of writing and publishing. But also, I wanted to sort of emphasize how the internet age and technology actually like changed writing for the better in certain ways so yeah maybe it could maybe writing might seem like a dying art because of all this technology but at the same time technology has sort of given everyone the ability to have a voice right so anyone could go online and have a blog right now anyone can say whatever the hell they want even if you're wrong well same thing with publishing you can just self-publish now you can bypass all that stuff and give yourself a chance even if you suck and if you do suck then i guess you suck and no one will (laughs) no one will read your stuff and it won't resonate but the point is you can give yourself the opportunity to put yourself out there and get a chance and that's i guess where i'm at right now that's why i did it all myself and uh (laughs) how would you like describe uh the process uh for like 
your process for like writing poems uh is it ever hard for you to come up with new ideas or sometimes like i said a lot of my poems came out of like transitory periods in my life so i was going through a lot of like you know inner mental or emotional turmoil and it's usually at the at those periods when i'm really brooding or thinking over something or reflecting on it that uh, i guess a poem was sort of just like form inside of me and then i'll scribble it down in my book or if i'm at my computer i'll type a little something out uh, and usually they'll grow sometimes or they'll shrink so i might you know put a bunch of stuff out for one piece for one idea and then wind up chipping away at it kind of like a, a sculpture you know like a how a sculptor extracts a huge piece of marble to start with and then when he begins he starts chipping his form away out of that material so sometimes writings like that you um <clears throat> you sort of let all this massive amount of material out and then you start looking through it and chipping away and chipping away until you get a form out of it other times you know a poem will just come out of me and i don't really change it very much sometimes it just comes out of me and it feels right that way and i sort of just leave it like that and uh, what was your experience like uh, getting your book published uh <clears throat> Sorry. Um, it was it was quite an experience. Actually, I feel really good about it because I did it. You know, because I did it. I didn't. You know, I didn't go to anyone else for really anything. I had people look over the manuscript. I had friends look at it and help me nitpick and edit and catch mistakes. But you know, I formatted everything. I uh, <laughs> I wrote everything. I took the pictures. I designed the cover. It was a learning experience, you know, I had to look up things on tutorials and blogs just to see what the self-publishing world was like, you know, how do I go about doing this? Uh, I guess I should talk about CreateSpace because I did it through CreateSpace. There's a lot of mixed feelings about CreateSpace right now in the writing world. Um, I know some publishers or writers might look down on self-publishing because we sort of skipped the whole process of being judged and we just went in there and did it. Also, like, I know, like, publishing on the create space it's a little harder to like stock your books in stores and that type of thing because they don't make the same profit the benefit of create space is they're an amazon company so you make quite a bit if you sell your books on amazon which is a popular way for people to buy books and it goes right up there immediately so that was a you know a good aspect of self-publishing um of my whole experience i guess the frustrating part is just you know self-promoting and just having to just do it all myself not having a publisher or an agent or anything like that to help me promote my book so that's been my experience with it just kind of i guess entrepreneurial broke entrepreneur <laughs> <laughs> and uh, are you happy with the book the way it is or are there some ways like you wish you could have improved it or still want to improve it well actually after uh, the first printing there are a couple little mistakes in there that i caught i don't know how many readers will actually catch it like there's a spelling error on one of the pages in the intro and then in one of the poems there's like the wrong word that's used that sounds similar to the right word <laughs> <laughs> but i used the wrong one and some people might not notice other people will so the first few copies have those errors in it but i already corrected them um i resubmitted the files whatever printing people order now will be corrected already besides that um I'm not too confident in all of them, some of my earlier stuff, but I stated that in the intro. You know, I'm aware of that, that I'm not too confident in some of that stuff, but I felt the need to put it out there anyway because, you know, just trying to find my voice, first book, all that stuff. So I guess in the long run, yeah, I'm happy with it. I'm happy that I finished something that I just was able to wrap the project up, put it behind me now. I'm already writing new material and thinking about my next book of poems. So um, overall, I, yeah, I'm happy. I don't think I'll really change anything. It'll stay the way it is. <laughs> and uh, so uh, through uh, throughout your book, this is uh, your time at uh, Kane University. Uh, <coughs> what can you say about uh, your experience at Kane University and how did it like sh help shape you as an individual? <coughs> <clears throat> My college years had a, a huge impact on me, honestly. Um, I imagine it does for a lot of people, but particularly for me because, you know, I spent four, four or five days a week there. I was there all the time. So 
I have a, a sentimental attachment to that school. I have a life of – what am I saying? A love-hate relationship with that school. Love in the sense that you know it was my home for a very long time. I worked there, so I met a lot of really cool people. I got close to some very cool professors. Um, at the same time, as you already know, because you also went to Kane, <laughs> and I would see you around here and there, the politics of the school. You know, the politics were corrupt. You know, we had an administration who was very corporate, and they seemed to channel all their money into business and science because they think that's where all the money's going to get them. They're building all these fancy buildings and, you know, <laughs> raising the debt. Um, and not really focusing enough on the creative arts. Uh, I know a lot of departments were neglected. Just certain things really started to anger me. And from my very first semester, actually, in 2009, I already started getting signs that, you know, something was a little amiss with the university. And the first, uh, I guess, inclination I had of that was when I found out that the philosophy major had been taken away. This is my first semester. So I had a friend. She came in the same year as me. She wanted to major in philosophy. Uh, she couldn't. She couldn't major in what she actually wanted to because that major was some. It was removed. They removed it. The department was still there, and I believe you could minor in it, but no more major. So I started to wonder, you know, how does a university that calls itself a world-class university, right, world-class mm -hmm. education, not have a philosophy major? I don't care if there's five students in that major. I don't care if there's two students in that major. You should have a philosophy department, and you should make sure that you have a good philosophy department and a powerful one, even though a lot of people don't major in that. A lot of people aren't going to go on and become philosophers in their lives. My main point is the very idea of academic gathering, meaning getting together, talking, learning stuff from a teacher, for example – comes from philosophy it comes from philosophy the socratic method all that stuff the very idea of making schools comes from this concept of philosophizing together so to be at a university and just to realize that that was taking a back seat that that was not something that was important enough to them <laughs> where they could just you know get rid of the major uh, phase it out according to the terminology i was told by some people in student government you know, I would use the term like, oh, you guys abolished the philosophy department. And I had someone say to me, oh, no, we didn't abolish it. We phased it out, meaning they slowly got rid of it because they realized it wasn't bringing them enough income. You know, whether it's gradual or instant, you abolished it. I don't want to hear euphemisms. They got rid of it. And that was one of the first signs. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and you talk about uh, greed a lot. I just I was just uh, wondering, like, since uh you know, you were talking about your interest in spirituality, too. What is your opinion on, like, uh, use of, like, spirituality for, like, material gain and stuff like that? Use of spirituality for material gain? Yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, like, you know, when people think, like, if they meditate or focus on something, they're going to get, like, super rich or they're going to get, like... That's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah, seriously. That's, um... You find a lot of that mentality in some new age circles and stuff today that if we just, you know, sit and meditate on love and light and we can raise our vibrations and awaken the whole world. I wish it were that easy. That would be nice if it were that easy. In fact, I think a lot of the people in power would prefer everyone to just sort of sit around in meditation circles <laughs> and focus on love and light and not actually like do anything, you know, that I, you know, that mentality got popularized by books like The Secret. Like, I don't know if you ever heard of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what that is. You know, that's sort of this mentality that you attract things to you based on how you think and your attitude. So if you're a negative person and you think of negative things, you attract negative things to you. And if you're positive, you attract – so think positive and you'll be rich or win the lottery. But there's something inherently flawed about that, you know, when you really analyze it. Okay, so all the kids starving in the slums of India right now. I guess they just, you know, weren't positive enough yeah. to pull themselves out of this situation, right? <laughs> Maybe if they thought a little, you know, positive, you know, they could not be poor kids in the slums of India. They could get out of that and and attract better things to themselves. 
and also, you know, the inherent flaw in this type of thing is it's like saying if we look at the negative in the world, if we, you know, shed light on the negative things in the world, if we talk about the negative things in the world, it's almost like people like this believe we're feeding those things, yeah. that energy and making things worse. Whereas if we just didn't let those things bother us and just be happy and love all the time like that, that uh, things would change. You know, we wouldn't be contributing to that. And I think that's uh, totally wrong. You know, I don't think you grow from being happy and comfortable all the time. It's just not how it works. I think ignoring the dark things in the world because you don't want to feel like a negative person will increase those dark things. It will allow those dark things to run rapid and do whatever the hell they want and I guess instead it's of shedding of light. Like an indifference in a way. Like, in a sense, it's kind of like an indifference, but these people sort of mask it into thinking they're actually like doing something, you know. And I think that stuff, like meditating and that spiritual journey, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to do so much with changing the external world because you're not supposed to start there. When you look at mysticism and you look at spirituality, the point is to go within and to change yourself. That is what you're doing. So when you sit, when you meditate, when you reflect. When you analyze yourself, when you analyze your beliefs, when you question them. To me, that's all forms of meditation. The point is to transform yourself. And in transforming yourself and changing the way you think and in changing the way you feel about the world, that can then be channeled into actual action within the world. So doing something with that change inside of you and that action will change the outside world or at least contribute to that change in the outside world. But meditation itself won't. You know, you actually have to do something. You know, Martin Luther King was a spiritual person. He was a Christian, you know, and he was he was an angry person, right? You know, we look at him and you don't see someone who is like passes and just sitting around and preaching, you know, to just hold hands and stuff. Yeah, he wasn't fighting people, but he was angry. You know, when he got up on that mic, he wasn't just being kind and sweet. He was mad. He didn't just politely ask for the system to treat him better. He demanded the system treated him better. He took that spiritual development he got from his, I guess, internal exploration and he projected it into the outside world to make change. And that's that's my view on that. And uh, so um, have you participated in any events like poetry festivals or do you plan on doing that in the future? I actually haven't been to any poetry festivals or anything like that. Uh, I do plan on... um, exploring more just the performance aspect of poetry which is something i never really did like i read stuff before like at school for classes it doesn't really count but yeah i definitely want to explore the more performance aspect of poetry i feel like it would help you know spread you know my art around more so open mics things like that go to various cafes local spots Right now, I'm just working on getting my book stocked, actually, in local libraries around here. So I'm going to start with my hometown. I'm going to get it in the Elizabeth Public Library so people can just take it out. But poetry festivals would be cool. I would be interested in doing that. And uh, so is there like a could you read like a poem for the listeners that you find particularly meaningful and talk a bit about it? Or? Ooh, OK. Um. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know you were gonna hit me with that. All right. <laughs> oh, let, me, let me flip through this. Oh dear. Okay. I'm not gonna do any of any of the more emotional ones. I feel like uh, we're we're a little more political here, so maybe I'll uh I'll keep it political. Okay. We're going to get political here. Uh, this one is Programming a Generation. Delete dissenters. Uh, I guess I'll explain it after I read it. Turned 11 on the ninth day of the ninth month. Two days later, the 11th. Morning of demolition drama. Sitting at a desk near the window. Miss Lopez turns on the Tell Your Vision What to See. Powerful images. A steel pillar burns on the screen. Another plane strikes the second. Returned home early that afternoon. Red alert. Fear signals bombarding the bombarded. 
America under attack. I was too young to understand. Now I see psychological assault on the populace from within. 21st century Reichstag burning? Crown of capital held aloft by the pillars of Hercules, sacrificed. Historical rhyming, not repetition, yet a stench I smelled as a child and began to trace as an adolescent. The stench of cindered wires, pulverized concrete mixed with bodies from my backyard for over a week. The stench of indefinite war, manufactured terror, FBI informants, surveillance, Homeland Security, Patriot Act, NDAA, TSA, torture, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, increased militarism, millions sacrificed, occupation, resources siphoned, black gold, drones, 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 death from the sky, central intel coups, proxy wars, and drug smuggling, the other phobia, live in phobia, ignorance is strength, terror buzzwords, media missiles, fear the other, lingers in my backyard still. An environment transformed under our noses, before our eyes, fed to us by a screen, a peddled narrative. I am post 9-11 generation, generated, trying to deprogram myself, weaving through droves of drones on ground, complimenting the sky, kissing the sun, trying to be thankful for life, to be grateful. Music, art, friends, a struggling family, yet still a family alive, not bombed to smithereens. Reading, drumming, smoking, sipping coffee, petting my cat, some quote-unquote freedom, privilege, to entertain myself. Eating poisoned food, the same as you, from a grocery store. An aching heart, restaurant drudgery and student loan debt. No car, hardly any currency. Filling a room with books, trying to catch up to reading them all. Vocal on the internet, loved and detested. Anathema for dissenting, asking questions, trying to ameliorate. A little odd, perhaps, but in a bundle of ways, I am like you. I am an American, born and raised in a cage with more elbow room than most, yet shrinking at the price of blood. Probably on the list for what I read, write, speak, and think in my own country on the brink. The nebulous they, quote unquote, keeping an eye out. Rhyme historical, metaphorical. Now the gadgets are fancier. G was right. The outward form changes, but the inner essence of man remains the same. The intellectuals and savages. Machines. Watching, recording, storing from cell phones, satellites, street cameras, internet searches, transactions, transportation, social media, data mine, data mine, data mining for mind molding. No, this isn't paranoia. This is reality. This is history. Assessment, manipulation, abandonment, control, alter, delete. The task managers repeat pathological praying party assuaging our fears, protection supersedes privacy and free speech until control, alt, delete, dissenters. Um, <laughs> so that was my 9-11 poem. That's, that's usually how I refer to it. I call it my 9-11 poem. I knew when I wrote this book that I had to have a poem about this. I didn't know what it would be like when I started writing it, but I knew like that poem was planned. I knew I had to have a poem about this in the book because it's such a big thing. You know, I feel like we as a country are fed all of these images. We're fed all of these lies. We're still in similar, you know, we're still in the same wars that were justified by this event. You know, this event we cannot stop talking about and we're like not allowed to even <laughs> stop talking about it. And it was such an important thing because to me, it wasn't just like a physical attack, you know, on the country. Whether you believe it was terrorists or not, I don't. Um, I think it was terrorists, but I don't think they're terrorists. We think of as terrorists. I think they're terrorists in very expensive suits who have higher positions in uh, the government and intelligence agencies. But whatever you think of it, it wasn't just a physical attack. It was a psychological attack. 
it was an assault on the populace's mind, on our psyche, because a lot of us seem to forget, you know, wars aren't just physical things. Wars aren't just things we fight with weapons and guns. Wars are things we fight with words. That's why I wrote this book. This is my uh, this is my ammunition. This is my weapon. This is, you know, you know, we all think the pen is uh, mightier than the sword. We've heard this growing up. But it's true, and that's that's what it means. It doesn't just mean like the pen is able to enlighten us or the word is able to teach us. The word is also able to deceive us. The word is, is able to lie to us. The word is able to get us to believe things that aren't true. And that's what happens. You know, war is also a psychological war. So, uh, yeah, so I guess it's like uh, the, the conscious – like you're talking about like the consciousness like uh, – of every or the climate of uh, everybody's uh, like thinking and everything after 9/11 and the whole it world. changed yeah it changed everything it totally changed the country and there's a lot of scholars who talk about that today just how different things became after this this event you know 9/11 was our Kennedy that's what I think of when I think of 9/11 Kennedy's a big thing too you know I I definitely want to write a little bit more about that period and my reflections you know, on what I've learned about that period. But the point is 9-11 is that period to me, to you, to us, to our generation. That was our Kennedy. So if you ask anyone who grew up in the 60s, you know, where were you when President Kennedy was shot? They all know, you know, they can tell you exactly what they were, where they were doing, how that affected them, how they felt. The whole country was impacted by that event. Similarly, 9-11 was the same thing. Well, immediately after it happens, bam, they start pumping a story out. Without even having investigation, you know, they already start pumping a story out, start pumping a narrative out. We get all of these powerful images on TV and we don't really think about how those powerful images can be shaped or put there deliberately to make us think and feel a particular way about a situation. And that's what I mean about a psychological war is that, you know, people in power invest lots of money into studying psychology. You know, if you've ever seen the documentary Century of the Self – I don't know if you've watched that. It's a documentary series. Um, it's like five parts, I believe. It hones in on a man named Edward Bernays. He wrote a book called Propaganda. He had a lot of books. He was the nephew of Freud, Sigmund Freud. And what he did was he took crowd psychology and he fused these theories with his uh, uncle's psychoanalysis theories. And they started applying these techniques to marketing and also to campaigning, meaning – how to use psychology to mold people's minds to think a certain way, so to control public opinion, for example. But you could apply this to products too in a very simple way. So I'm a, I'm a company. I'm trying to sell you a hair product. So I'm going to have a commercial with a bunch of beautiful models on it. Their hair is going to look perfect and pristine. Their hair has to make you feel shitty about yours. So <laughs> I'm going to psychologically make you feel less than. And then I'm going to psychologically convince you that I have the solution for that. So buy my product. I can help you with that. Buy my product. You want to look like this woman? You want perfect hair? Buy my product. This is what you lack. I can f fulfill what you lack. Politicians do the same thing. People in power do the same thing, you know? And you feel like they were able to like take advantage of people's uh, fear after 9/11, like? Of course, they did. They totally took advantage of that. I mean, look at how fast the war in Iraq escalated after that. You know, bam! By 2003, we're already in there, and Iraq had nothing to do with that. You know, Iraq had nothing to do with that attack at all. And all of a sudden, the two are being linked, and and this is where the country is going. And now, you know, how many lives later? Over a million, you know, people have died there. Far more than our soldiers, you know, and that sucks for them, too. You know, I don't want our soldiers there either dying for this system, this corrupt system that really doesn't give a shit about them any more than it does about me. So just because you're out there on the fields fighting, it just breaks my heart to think that so many people in the military really think they're truly fighting for like me and for you because of this like event like they're fighting these terrorists when it's such like it's an abstract enemy it's an enemy you can't pinpoint it's an enemy you can you can easily create just an indefinite war because you can always just move on and accuse someone else of being a terrorist and like the very fight to try to stop terrorism creates more terrorists <laughs> you know so like you go into these other countries and you're trying to like find you know enclaves of terrorists and then you bomb a whole big place and the next thing you know you 
killed a grandma, you killed a, a baby, you killed a, someone's uncle, someone's father. And, you know, what do you expect from people who might not have as much education, who might, you know, the only thing they might even have left is the Quran. The, might, the only thing they might even have left is their religion, you see? So what do you create when you destroy someone's family and all they have left is religion? You're making radicals. And the power system knows that. You know, the CIA knows that. They know that if they go there and fight terrorism, they're going to make more terrorists because it creates a war that can just keep going as long as they want it to keep going. It's perfect for them. Yeah, and then they just tell the public that the only reason they're angry is because, you know, we have freedoms here and everything. So. Yeah, which is, you know, total bull, too. You know, that's another thing that bothers me, you know, this American exceptionalism. We hear this term. This term keeps coming up. I know Chomsky uses it here and there and like um, Chris Hedges, I know, has used it a few times. But, you know, American exceptionalism that we're somehow exempt or we're somehow better in certain ways at all these things because we're like the leader of the free world. When we're like, what, number 30 something in education, we're, we're not number one in all the things that matter, you know, all the things that make a real, true, like civilized nation. You know, you know, what we're number one in. I think, you know, Sean, what we're number one in. What are we number one in? Obesity. <laughs> You're right. That one. Yeah. Prisoners. True. And yeah. military. That's it. That's what we excel in. We have the most prisoners. So we have the biggest, you know, mil we have the biggest prison industrial system. And we have the biggest military budget in the world, more than every single freaking country combined. That's what we're number one in. We're, we're just... We're a bully with a big stick right now. Um, I wish it were otherwise, but that is, you know, that is that is where we are. That's what we're number one in. And you know, I don't hate America. I get this a lot too from people. I, I don't know if you get this for being someone who speaks out, but all the time, you know. Well, if you don't like it here, then leave. God, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I would have left already. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just don't like that argument at all because like they, then they're saying like oh yeah we believe in like we like uh believe in like freedom of speech and all that we believe in freedom but like if somebody makes a critique like it's in the point of freedom of speech to be able to criticize yeah. your country and try to make changes like yep, i mean otherwise what's the point of having freedom of speech it's but not to like give your view a, on the weather a lot of this will be like just the mentality that you're ungrateful that's what i hear from people that well why don't you just Go somewhere else and see what it's like there, and you'll see how much better America is. And I think a lot of this is kind of biased too, because I hear it from people who may have like come here as like immigrants or people who may have come from other countries, and because the situation in their country that they came from financially wasn't as well, and they came here and they found a job and they made something for themselves, they just they still have that mentality of this place as that land of opportunity that saved them. And in many ways, yeah, you know, this place. Mm -hmm did save a lot of people a lot of people did come here and find opportunities but we're not the freaking bee's knees we're not exceptional you we can't put ourselves as this number one place like the standard of free world you know in europe there's tons of countries that are like america you know you you, you go around the world there are other countries that are just as free as us you go to certain countries you you know you get education paid for or you get out with the savings instead of in debt which is like the opposite if you know, I would only consider us exceptional in number one when we start giving every American free education. Definitely, I would say, okay, we're on the right track right now. Because I'm in like I'm in twenty five thousand dollars worth of debt. It's not a lot to some people. It's a lot to me. I know other people are in more student debt. The point is, okay, democracy, right? It's based on voting, all that stuff. How do you vote if you're not informed, right? How do yeah. you how do you vote? If you don't know what's going on, if you're not educated, right? So technically, a democracy can't even like function the way that we're told it's supposed to function unless you have an educated populace, right? So if we wanted to build America up and make it into this thing we were taught it was supposed to be, you would think we would all get free education right. because the leaders of the free world would just be like, well, this is how we make America number one. Let's just teach everyone so they're all smart and then we'll excel. They don't want smart people. They want compliance. They want you know, people in debt. So even the smart people, when the smart people get out of college, they can't even fight back anymore because they're they're stuck trying to pay off this huge weight on their shoulders. And it's just nuts because we have so much money to build a freaking two million dollar drone, right? We can build one of those things, but you can't pay. You can't just you know forgive my debt. 
You can't forgive my debt. You can't forgive yours. It's bullshit. The whole thing's a sham. We're not number one. And uh, do you think um, like there were it's it's getting like worse now with like certain things uh, or were there other parts in history that it was like worse, like uh, with like World War One, like locking up anti-war protesters and stuff like that? Um, what worries me now is because we have a little more elbow room and we can move a little more and, you know, the civil rights movement happens. So, you know, even like people of color seem to have more opportunities. It's so much more complex than that. You know, like the whole thing with right now with, um, I'm not going to call it the anti-cop movement, but the Black Lives Matter movement, we call it that. Um, just because black people have a little more opportunity now doesn't mean economic racism is not real doesn't mean you know racism went away it doesn't mean that the very foundation of this country is still and will always be genocide and slavery and racism like this country's founded on those things do i think it's better now honestly i think it's going to get scarier technology is a big reason why i feel that way i mean look at it now we can fly around unmanned robots and we can you know be sitting in some base all the way over here in America and fly a little toy robot around and, and shoot whoever the hell we want overseas. It's only a matter of time. You know, we're, we're already flying these things around our own country. There are already police forces that are beginning to implement drone technology. I believe there's over 30 states right now that have test programs going for drone technology. It's only a matter of time before those things are patrolling our streets, right? Not just that, but, you know, mechanical war dogs. We're developing things like that. Like, I don't know if you've seen this, but, like, years ago, DARPA already started developing, like, literal, like, dog robots where you could attach guns and shit to these things. And just imagine a world like that where eventually you have that type of thing patrolling your streets. Once it gets to that point, it'll be too late. People won't be able to stand up. They just won't because the people who will own that technology and control it are not going to just let that happen. They're just not. So I think... We might feel like we have a little more freedom because we're not getting locked up right now for protesting, but I don't, I don't see it as, you know, that lasting. I don't think that's gonna last forever. Well, I guess the but main I, thing is the internet, like the people are able to for like free speech and stuff like that. Like that's probably like the last hope for free speech. Like it's the, the computer's a double-edged sword. I look at the internet as a double-edged sword. Here's why. It's kind of like the Roman roads. So, like, you know, in the Roman Empire, they built all these roads to connect all the various territories they conquered, right? Because the roads made it easier for the armies to get from place to place to place and police all these territories. Well, also, the roads made it easier for Christianity to spread around and for opposing viewpoints to the empire to spread around, which, you know, eventually was one of the contributing factors that resulted in the fall of the empire. Well, the Internet's similar. The development of computers was vastly you know, invested in by banking interests, for example, by big corporate interests. They helped develop the computer and the internet. You know, Any major technological advancement we have usually follows war. It's usually <laughs> developed by the military in some kind of way, and the military is obviously controlled by the banking institutions. Well, what technology did is it, it enabled banking or fractional reserve banking and putting not just people in debt, but now entire countries into debt possible. It made that possible because now you, not, every, not all the data is being processed by paper, right? So you don't have people sitting there processing every single account, all these transactions via paper. Now everything's in computers and it's just rapid speed. So you can spread your banking institution even further because you can manage even more data, even more debtors. So it enabled the spreading of banking to actually take over the world in the way that it has taken over the world because now we have this technology to process all of the data fast. And the double-edged sword is the Roman roads. So it created this open space, this mic for us to all get onto and sort of talk and at the same time expose that system. And that's, yeah, that would be the beauty of the internet. And, uh, all right, so you talk about, you talked about, uh, like, your other passions, play music and art. Uh, how, how, in what ways is that, uh, similar, like, to writing as a form of creativity? In what days, what ways is it, uh, different? It's, uh, it gives you a similar feeling, I suppose. Like, it, it works the brain out. It's a brain workout. 
Um, it invokes similar emotions, but at the same time, it is very different. You know, to to work with words is hard. You know, you're limited to these little squiggles on a page, and with these little squiggles on a page, you have to bring you know pictures to life. You have to bring color to life. You have to you know invoke some sense of even like sound and you know of an environment of things happening. You have to literally paint like a picture to someone in their head. Not all poetry is like that. Some is less image-based and some is more philosophical. I know a lot of mine is. The point is you, you're limited to these little symbols on a page, whereas when you're painting or doing visual art, you know you have this whole array of color and shape, and you can even throw words on your painting too if you want, so you can fuse the medium. And it's, uh, it, you know, Colors invoke certain emotions. Shapes and symbols evoke certain emotions, and they evoke all of this like all at once. And with very little work, for example, from the viewer. The viewer can just sort of stand there and take the painting in, or the viewer can sort of listen to music and take all that in. Literature is different in the sense that it forces you to do some work. <laughs> you know? You're not get you can't just sit there and stare at the page, right? You can't sit there and stare at the page and get the same feelings and get all of the thoughts that, you know, I might be trying to invoke, say if I painted a painting or wrote a song. Because all I have to do is watch or listen. Yeah, you'll analyze, you'll take it apart with your brain, but it's not quite the same as when you have to engage and sit and read. You have to read the text. So what makes writing difficult as an art form is it expects uh, the viewer or the person receiving the art to meet us halfway, to do the work, to actually pick the text up and to absorb it and to try to get those feelings and those emotions from the text. They're not immediately evoked, if that makes any sense. It's I, you know, The reader has to do some work. And it's hard. That's what makes writing sort of like almost like the hardest art form in many ways because we're just limited, you know, certain amount of letters, certain amount of space on a page. So, like, what motivates you to keep writing? Has there ever been like uh, any times you felt like giving up or? Um, I guess I will, not really giving up, but I guess I'll, you know, contemplate the type of future that i'm like forging for myself by picking this route because i could have picked a different route i could have just became like a general english major and got you know did the praxis and went directly into teaching i would have been making more money right now but at the same time my book wouldn't have been done i wouldn't have finished it i would have never wrote it i wouldn't have focused on that i would have become a teacher you know made more money but i wouldn't have been a writer so i guess i'm not i never had any period where I thought about quitting but I had periods where I just you know questioned you know how comfortable and <laughs> how comfortable will I be financially from picking this this route you know the starving artist route and uh but what... no I uh I can't regret writing I will never regret writing it's um she's my bride <laughs> the word is my bride she won't leave me ever and uh where do you hope to one day be with your writing I just hope – I hope I'm able to open doorways in the minds of other individuals out there. You know, I hope I'm able to give them maybe a perspective they never had or they find a perspective they did have and they realize they're not alone, that someone else out there sees these things too and someone else out there went through similar things too and felt similar things too. And that's the beauty of literature is like – it enables us to increase our empathy because we're able to look at other people's experiences and almost like live experiences that we never did live and we never did experience. And we're sort of given a window, a glimpse into having experienced that, you know, and just my goal is to just, you know, put that window out, to put my window out there, to give someone the chance, I guess, to peer into some of the things I've learned, you know, over the years. And I don't know. I, I just I hope it reaches someone, it touches them, that it changes them in some way for the better, that it makes them grow. Um, even if it's one person, you know, that's enough. So any advice for other aspiring writers? Uh, just keep doing it. <laughs> just uh, just sit and do it. Um, there's so many different types of writing, you know, it's, it's not all creative. Like I said, I was doing a lot of uh, scholarly writing and I'm still working on a book on research and that's a more tedious, different type of writing, you know, that's organizing information. It's it's footnotes and source material and citations and, you know, that type of thing. And it's a writing form and it's an art form, 
but it's not the same as creative writing. So, you know, I would say whatever form of writing you're into, learn about it, read that type of writing, you know, explore that and just keep working at it. Just keep working at it. Um, have other people read it, have them point out things. That's another thing, you know, sometimes we read our own writing and we miss things because we become blind to our own mistakes or we just look at it so much we get we go a little crazy. So remember to take a break from it. Step back, take a breather, go out. Don't get too frustrated. You know, show it to a friend, show it to someone, get another perspective on whatever you're working on. And I guess just don't give up. And it's hard for me to say because it's still my first book and I'm broke as hell. But, you know, I did do it. I'm happy. I put the book out. I'm I'm glad, you know, some of it is some of it's very vulnerable shit. Some of it is stuff that, you know, I haven't told many people. And now anyone in the world can know those things, <laughs> what goes on in my head. So it's so I guess another piece of advice I would you know give is, you know, remember that writing is a vulnerable thing and that you're sort of exposing yourself when you share those pieces with other people. But, you know, do it with do it with a purpose, you know, do it with a purpose. Don't do it just to like say poor me look at my poor experience you know do it to say well look at my poor experience look at what I learned from it and you can learn from this too and I think that's you know that's that's my goal just to get people to learn if I can get someone to love learning I will be so happy (laughs) I will die happy and uh any final thoughts or things you'd like to say things I'd like to say um well, thank you, first of all, for having me. This has been an interesting experience. I never really uh, was given an open platform <laughs> to actually talk about anything I've ever written. So thank you for having me. Um, I guess I would just say, you know, keep an eye out, get the book, look at it, love it, hate it, you know, whatever you get out of it. Drop an Amazon review if you want. That would be nice. That would help me. And, you know, just just uh, keep Keep watching my updates because I'm working on new material. I want to have another book of poems hopefully finished by the end of the summer. That would be nice. And I'm going to just keep working on my research book, and I'll keep everyone updated on that too. And I guess my final words would be, you know, keep learning. Keep learning because if you keep learning, you'll understand how to love. If you understand how to love objectively, you'll help create some kind of, you know, space for more comfort for people in this really dark world you know this predatory world full of lots of conspiring and war crimes and corruption and all of that stuff that you know and you know expose it learn about it you know keep fighting that's my last words keep fighting (laughs) (laughs) all right well uh that does it for this episode of uh bsing with sean k uh thanks again to uh dan for coming on thanks a lot sean yo have a good day man yeah you too And uh, I should have more episodes coming soon, so uh, stay tuned.